So I think it's worth um, comparing and also, oh, I know what I need to do. I need to start this. Comparing and also contrasting Rochester with Dryden. But I thought maybe I'd ask you to do that first. So what did you think after reading all that Dryden? What did you think about reading Rochester? George, it came as a relief. Why? Comic relief. Comic relief. Okay. It's not all comic, though. Um, There are probably three different kinds of poems that he's writing, um, some of which are really broadly comic. The one that got him into the most trouble, do people know about this, Um, is the last poem in the selection. I didn't actually tell you that you had to read this, but I just hope you couldn't put it down. Um, Is that wrong? So the last poem, the selection, which is called A Satire in Charles II. Um, so Rochester's poems, basically, people loved his poetry when he was writing it. And um, you should basically know this. This is not so true of Dryden, but it's very true of Rochester and very true, especially of aristocratic poets, that they tended not to publish very much until the 18th century, but we're still in the 17th century, especially if they didn't have to publish to make a living, which Dryden did. Um, And so their poems tended to circulate in manuscript, which means that uh, Rochester would write out copies of his poems, and then people would get those copies and write out more copies. And there um, there was a website at the time called 18th Century Poetster, which um, allowed for lots of illegal downloads of these poems. No, but it was a sort of BitTorrent kind of thing um, where people were um, uh, copying out copies of his poems, and he had his poems in manuscript. And one day, he he was friends with Charles II, um, partly because his father um, had been very helpful to Charles um, in the 1650s. And... um, so one day, Charles actually asked him for a poem. The story goes that Charles actually asked him about a poem that he'd written, and he was a little bit flustered, and he thought he had the poem on him. And he dug into his pocket, and he pulled out what he thought was the poem that Charles was asking for. But unfortunately for him, he gave him um, a poem he was working on, namely the satire on Charles II, which is the last poem in the selection. And if someone whom you were being really nice to and um, whom uh, you liked a lot and who professed to like you a lot, uh, if you find out that they've written this poem about you, you might um, be a little bit perturbed. I think Charles wasn't overly perturbed by it. Um, And apparently they made up afterwards. Um, But Rochester uh, was, it wasn't, um, it wasn't the happiest incident in his life. so that's the one, well, that's the one we'll probably talk more about um, on Tuesday. Uh, we're doing Rochester today and then Tuesday, and then it's on to Pope. Um, but so you get poems like the satire in Charles II, which are as um, dirty as it's possible to imagine. Um, you get poems which are actually kind of beautiful as songs. Um, and the, the, probably the best example of that in this selection is the first poem in the selection, Love and Life, a Song. Um, and then you get poems which are um, 
So those are, let's say, Rochester's cleanest poems. Um, the satire on Charles II is probably... It's actually not his dirtiest poem by a long shot, but it's probably the dirtiest poem that anyone gave a sitting monarch um, whom he claimed to be friends with about that sitting monarch. I feel that I can say that without much fear of contradiction. Um, and then there are... Um, pretty bitter poems like the satire against reason and mankind uh, which is probably what we'll talk about today and um, which was the poem that was made him most famous and the poem that was most copied out and talked about um, and then there are poems that are suggestive but not dirty um, and um, an example of that is against constancy which um, uh, depending on how you read it, you can read it as a dirty poem or not. But the satire um, against, against reason and mankind, um, how would that compare uh, to Dryden's philosophical poetry? How would you um, think of Rochester as writing in the mode or against the mode of Dryden? Uh, Rochester and Dryden, Dryden admired Rochester, but then he thought apparently mistakenly um, one day Dryden was attacked, um, basically mugged, and he thought that Rochester had actually paid the muggers to do it to him because Dryden had um, written some stuff saying that Rochester was a little bit scarless. Um, it seems not to be true. Um, it, it's, uh, the, the evidence that it was Rochester doing it seems to have been misread. So it, um, so it probably didn't happen, but there was also tension between Rochester and Dryden on the basis of that. And you can see that obviously there are a lot of ways they're very different. Um, how would you compare the satire against reason and mankind with Dryden? What are similarities, what differences? Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, okay. Um, you, f you may feel that, uh, that you're actually um, getting fairly deeply into Rochester's unfiltered um, emotional um, anger um, about how things are in the satire against mankind, whereas Dryden, um, although he will often write with very great passion, um, also is aware of his audience um, and aware of um, making an argument rather than simply being um, expressive. Okay, nice, good. Um, other comparisons or contrasts? George. Dryden is more for reason than Rochester for Okay, so there's certainly a distinction between them um, in, the, in um, their attitude towards instinct and also to some extent in their attitude towards reason. So again, the, the, um, if, you, if you read it in the Oxford edition, you'll have the title, A Satire Against Mankind. Um, in other editions, the fuller title, which is, which is more correct, is A Satire Against Reason and Mankind. 
and um, Rochester is um, really is taking reason to task as well. In fact, that's how the poem starts, with um, a critique, not a Kantian critique, but a criticism of reason um, in a way that is um, certainly different from Dryden, but might in some ways also be similar to Dryden. What's the, what is Rochester's critique against reason? Yeah. Tell And it's, yeah, that we use reason, but we're not so good at it. And the result is that it, that it leads us astray, that in trying um, to rule our lives and govern our lives more perfectly than is natural to us, we screw things up rather than, rather than making things better, we make things worse. Um, and that we do have natural instincts and natural ways of behaving, and we should follow those natural instincts and natural ways of behaving. Um, and yet, um, part of what's um, hard about the poem is that if you follow natural instincts and natural ways of behaving, what kind of thing will you do? What is natural to human beings? Yeah. Liz. Betrayal and treachery. Yeah. That um, we're the only animals who... Um, betray and are treacherous without um, an instant need for it. Um, at one point he says, out of wantonness. Um, he then tries to figure out where that comes from, why we're like that. But, he's, but he does say that that is our instinct. We have an instinct for betrayal and treachery. Um, so how to follow instincts um, in a way that's okay, well, that's, a, that's another question as well. Um, let's, I think what we should do is, we probably have time for this, is, is basically to go through the poem. Um, I, just by way of a general remark um, about the variety of poetry that Rochester writes, um, which is something that we saw somewhat in Dryden, who writes really wonderful um, comic verse that verges on the obscene, as in um, McFlecknell, um, loads of shit blank, almost charged the way, almost choked the way, um, but also writes very serious philosophical poetry and also um, well, writes pretty much every kind of poetry you can. Um, you will see in Pope someone who is um, extraordinarily gifted as a comic poet um, and attempted and thought that his most important work was his philosophical poetry. Um, a lot of, um, you'll recognize a lot of famous sayings from Pope's philosophical poetry, especially from the essay on man. Um, that's, um, a lot of that will be familiar to you even if you've never read it. There are a lot of lines in it that will be familiar to, uh, to you. Um, to Byron, a uh, hundred years after Pope, um, who revered Dryden, I've mentioned this before, revered Dryden and Pope, and who also wrote very serious poetry and also very obscene poetry and um, very wonderful comic poetry. And there's no question that Byron's greatest poetry is his comic poetry. Um, and then um, even to people, not poets, but to writers like the Marquis de Sade, um, who in a way you should think of... Um, as 
setting setting the issue really interestingly because what happens I don't know if any of you have read any of Saad's novels um, they get boring after um, a few pages um, but because basically the same thing happens over and over again which is that there's some incredibly inventive sex scene forced upon um, an innocent young woman or an innocent young man or, or various groups of innocent young women and men. Um, but that always happens when there's some, some figure in power um, who arranges for um, some rape or coercion into sex. But what will usually happen is there'll be a conversation in a Saad novel. And the conversation will either end up with a guy saying, okay, now you have to um, have really bizarre sex that you've never even thought about um, with all these people. Or the conversation will turn into a philosophical argument about the nature of humanity and um, whether a good God could possibly have created the world as it is. And there's a, there's a sort of what um, fight or flight moment. There's something... Um, some of you guys may know the term catastrophe theory, which is um, a branch of chaos theory, and it's basically where um, you're in a situation which can break one or the other, or sometimes more than two, but let's say in two radically different ways. So the standard example of this is fight or flight. That is that a dog is very upset, and its hair is standing on end, and it's kind of growling and and looking um, like it really hates this situation. And then if you push that situation a little bit, the dog will do one of two things. It'll either attack you or it'll run away. And so there's the two radically different outcomes from a situation which is, um, which is unstable, but which could go either way. The radical difference in outcome doesn't mean a radical difference in initial, um, in origin of the act. So either the dog runs or it fights, um, and it could have easily tipped the other way. So in Sod, you either get really, really um, athletic and appalling sex, or you get a long philosophical argument. Um, and the philosophical arguments and the sex scenes both tend to go on for about 25 pages. Um, so they tend to be about the same length, and so structurally, they're sort of um, where these things eventuate. Whatever they are, this is what they get to. Long philosophical argument or long sex scene. Um, and there's something about a certain attitude, um, a certain nihilist attitude towards um, the enlightenment or proto-enlightenment or um, secular um, thinking about what the world is like that is in the 17th century, in the 18th century, you're looking at the world and you're trying to figure out how could this come to be? How could people um, turn out to be this way if we give an account that has nothing to do with original sin or with religious deprivation and just look at human beings as natural entities like all other entities in nature, um, we are struck with, um, with certain um, not-so-good facts about what human beings are like. And people, writers who get struck by this, um, often you will see that um, the way they respond to it will be, this high, will, will be in this highly unstable way. 
where they might say, um, they might turn libertine or they might turn philosophical, but where they're most interesting is where they are sometimes libertine and sometimes philosophical. And what that tells you, what that brings out, is the way the libertine um, uh, content of someone like Rochester or someone like Saad, um, the way the libertine content has a philosophical edge, is doing some of the, giving some of the same responses that the philosophical um, content always also does. Um, there's a story that just to just to tell you what I what I have in mind. Um, Roman Jakobson um, tells a story about Pushkin, who is um, a contemporary of Byron's, um, so and also wrote some very serious poetry and some very libertine poetry. Um, and he wrote a poem. Uh, do people know who he is? Alexander Pushkin. Pushkin. No. He's quite a character, but but he existed. Um, he's like the Russian Shakespeare. Yeah. The other person who's like the Russian Shakespeare is is Tolstoy, <coughs> but yeah, Pushkin is is um, you know one one of the um, I think by common acclamation regarded as one of the two um, on the two absolutely gigantic Russian writers, Tolstoy being the other one, um, and um, so so Roman Jakobson, the twentieth century literary theorist and linguist and various other things. Um, was very interested in the fact that Pushkin wrote a sonnet, a highly idealizing sonnet about this woman he knew. Um, um, I think her name was Anna Pavlovna. Um, and it was basically the sonnet about how she, you know, she's untouchably great and up in the stars and up in the heavens and how wonderful she is. And it turned out that his journals, which were published in the 20th century, that basically the same day he wrote this sonnet um, of his absolute adoration for this untouchable... Um, uh, woman, he wrote in his journals that by the grace of God I had Anna Pavlovna last night. Um, and so, and he goes into some detail apparently um, in the journals about what their sex was like and how good it was. And what Jakobson says, this is why I bring it up, is that you shouldn't think that the journal is telling you the truth of what Pushkin thought and that the sauna is just some gussied up um, and hypocritical high culture um, praise of her. And what Yatsen says is, had Pushkin been a 20th century writer, it might well have been the case that he would have published what he now confined to his journals, and he would have been too embarrassed and have only written in his journals the sonnet that he published. Um, that for a 20th century writer, um, the 20th century writer might very well write that sonnet um, about a person he just had sex with, um, but kept it private because that would be the thing that was too private to share with the world. Um, and I think you should keep that in mind when you read Rochester. That is, that, um, it's, that it's as important to interpret the scandalous or obscene poetry um, as a mask um, or as a mode of his um, making thinking through the philosophical things that, that his view of human life kind of pressures him to think through. Um, it's, as, it's as important to do that as to look at the apparently more serious poetry um, and see whether there are obscene jokes or hints or whether it's just gussied up 
um, libertinage. The, the distinction is not one where, the, where one is true and the other is false. Um, they are both symptoms of um, a same attitude or a same um, um, uh, take and stance and response and reaction to um, the fact of human life and what it's like to be a human. Um, so, I mean, just since it, it's just worth looking at that first poem, Love and Life, a song, and maybe keep that in mind um, as uh, something that Rochester, in one way or another, is always exploring. Um, so this is the first sheet of Xerox, if you have it. It's, um, all my past life is mine no more. The flying hours are gone, like transitory dreams, gin or whose images are kept in store by memory alone. Whatever is to come is not. How can it then be mine? The present moment's all my lot, and that, as fast as it is got, Phyllis, is wholly thine. Then talk not of inconstancy, false hearts, and broken vows. If I, by miracle, can be this livelong minute, true to thee, tis all that heaven allows. Um, the great melodramatic filmmaker Douglas Sirk um, took the title of one of his movies, um, surprisingly, from this last line, all that heaven allows. Um, so think about, this, this poem is a little bit surprising. Because it starts out philosophically. Um, the past is gone forever. Um, there's, where is it? It's nowhere. Um, it's like a dream. All that's left, if anything is left, are its images, and they're kept only by memory. They don't exist. Um, and the future doesn't exist either. Um, the future may one day come into existence, but then it will do so only momentarily, and then be gone. So the past is gone forever. The future doesn't exist at all. Um, and so there's no point in trying to claim that you own the future. Whatever is to come is not. How can it, how can it then be mine? The present moments, all my lot, so all there is is the present, and that as fast as it is got. And what you're expecting at that moment is him to say that as soon as you get the present, it disappears. Um, that is the standard thing to say. And by the time we get to line nine, um, he's making a, a deep but fairly standard observation. Um, that the past is gone, the future doesn't exist, and the present is, um, is of um, absolute um, ephemerality. Um, the present only exists um, instantaneously and is gone. Forever. So you're expecting something like, whatever is to come is not, how can it then be mine? The present moment's all my lot, and that, as fast as it is got, is gone like drops of wine, or something like that. Um, and, um, but you don't get that, you suddenly get something unexpected, which is the introduction of the beloved, of Phyllis, of the woman um, he's having a relationship with. With. That is the present moment, as fast as it is got, I give to you, Phyllis. Um, the name Phyllis here, which is a, which is a um, pastoral name, the kind of name that you would get in pastoral poetry that the shepherd would call 
his beloved Phyllis. Um, also, in particular, Phyllis means um, love or loved one. Um, so um, that's who she is, the person he loves. Um, and he says, look, the only thing I have is the present moment. And he doesn't say, and that immediately disappears into the past. What he says is, and I give it to you. So the present moment, that's all I have. And I give it to you. So what he's saying is, don't worry about the past. Don't worry about the future. Um, all that counts is the present moment. And don't worry about... And then it turns out there is um, an implication not so strong as to make this poem into a joke or a parody of itself, but strong enough to make it into something that he really means or that uh, into an argument he really wants to make, which is since the, there is only the present moment and since I am with you at the present moment, there is no cause for you to worry about who I had sex with in the past or who I will have sex with in the future um, because the past doesn't exist and the future doesn't exist. So why are you laughing? Because you think it's outrageous? No? Well, you could. One might. Um... Baby, I'm with you. Don't worry about the fact that tomorrow I'm going to cheat on you. Um, you can feel like that's not really a justifiable position. Um, but it's a position that he's actually um, come to sit down to write. Um, and he says to her, then talk not of inconstancy, which means that this is a poem about um, being open to the accusation of inconstancy. Then talk not of inconstancy, false hearts, and broken vows. Um, don't talk about the fact that I've betrayed other women because I'm now sleeping with you um, and that I'm very likely to betray you because I've betrayed them um, and that you know that I'm an inconstant person. The very next poem, um, he's going to talk about how um, he wants a new mistress every night in the poem called Against Constancy. Um, but he's saying um, that shouldn't be the issue. Um, then talk not of inconstancy, false hearts and broken vows. If I, by miracle, can be this live-long minute true to thee, tis all that heaven allows. And again, you have to ask, well, what does he mean by miracle, by the word by miracle? Um, is it a miracle that I can stay true to you for a full minute? Um, that would be the most um, uh, unidealistic view of what it would mean to be true to someone, is to be true to, true to them for an entire minute before you go off and have sex with someone else. This could be the first poem about speed dating. Um, or it could be that a minute is a really long time. The fact that it's not an instant only, it's not the present moment, but that somehow a full minute, that that present moment can be stretched out to a full minute, that's actually, that would be pretty miraculous, that that's how much I love you, that, that I can be completely enthralled by you and thinking about you and only you for a full minute. Um, and if you take that seriously, and Rochester always wants you to take him seriously, even when he wants you to take him unseriously as well. If you take that seriously, there's something true about that. 
That is, no one's mind doesn't wander after a minute, no matter how great what's happening um, at any moment is. A full minute, that's a long time for your mind not to wander. Um, and what he's saying is, but look, I'm actually being philosophically serious here, and I'm saying um, I can really imagine thinking only about you for an entire minute. And that looks like it's scornful and minimalist, but think about it the other way. Think about that as if that's literally true, that's actually pretty impressive to think about only one thing for a minute. Um, it's not clear how often that ever happens in a lifetime, that you think about only one thing for a minute, because that's not how thought works. Um, remember Dryden talks about, um, in the um, preface to fables, he talks about the association of ideas, um, which he gets from Hobbes, that is, that the way we think is something is always suggesting something else. Our mind is always um, picking up on something else. Um, you've all done this, where you say to yourself, wait a second, a minute ago I was thinking about plums, and now I'm thinking about Rio de Janeiro, how did that happen? Um, and then you trace back a minute's worth of thoughts, and it turns out that your mind was like all over the world. Like in that, is it the family circus, where, which sometimes shows the footsteps that the little kid does? His mother says, um, you know, go get the ball out of the yard. And then there's the little dot, dot, dot of his footsteps as he, is that the family circus? Yeah. So that's what our, ide our, our ideas do also, um, is that we just, to get from... Um, plums to Rio de Janeiro, and how I got those two examples, I don't know. But to get from Plums to Rio de Janeiro, we go all over the universe of our own thought, um, and we're surprised about all the things we've thought about in between, um, if we can retrace it. Um, so it's natural to human thought to always be like an air hockey puck um, skittering around the, um, the, the, the air hockey um, table. Um, never standing still, never just just being somewhere. But I, for a minute, might be true to thee, even though thought is at every moment going elsewhere in its mind. By some miracle, that's what a miracle you are, that I can be true to thee this live long minute. And then the third meaning of miracle is, and you know what, love actually is a miracle. That is, it's not a miracle that I'm true to you for a minute. It's a miracle that there's this thing called love. It doesn't matter whether it lasts or not. It's still miraculous that people feel love for each other. You don't need to demand more. You don't need to say, that's nothing. You say you love me, but I know you'll be inconstant. Um, yeah, I will be inconstant, so will you. But that's not the issue. What the amazing thing is, is that there's love to begin with. Um, and I think that that third idea of miracle, you're supposed to think of all three, but the third one, in a way, is the one that you're supposed to come to um, last, but with most pleasure. Um, love really is a miracle. Um, so if by mir so, then talk not of inconstancy, false hearts, and broken vows. If I by miracle can be this live long minute, true to thee, tis all that heaven. Allows. That's heaven itself, or all that heaven will permit on earth, um, because it's so much like heaven itself. Um, but the point is, you can see this poem as simply um, a parody of 
more standard, oh, I love you so much and, I'll, and I will be constant to you forever kind of love poems. Um, but if you only see it as a parody, you'll miss the other possibilities, which I think are even more important in the word miracle. Um, I, think, I think he wants that word stressed, and he wants um, the poem to, to fall on that. Um, yeah? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I think, I mean, so I think that that's sort of what I was calling the second use of miracle. Um, that is, but you're right to stress the, the, that that's a miracle in the material world. When I guess what I should say is that is that when I that Hobbes um, and his idea of the association of ideas, Hobbes is the great materialist philosopher. Um, Hobbes thinks that the brain is actually, or the mind is actually the brain, and the brain is actually like um, like a, like a gel that vibrates. And the reason our thoughts are always changing is the vibrations just kind of go bouncing around in this in this in this two and a half pound bit of jelly in our heads, um, and it's this constant just just um, uh, um, juddering of the jelly of our brains, which is our experience of thought and of memory and of everything else. Um, so so. That so you're right to stress the the I mean the materialism there because that also fits in um, with the Hobbesian idea of um, the unlikelihood of this material mind as well as a material body um, finding um, something stable at, for for the full length of the minute. Um, there's probably also, a, uh, and maybe you were referring to this, there's probably also a kind of hint at an obscene pun, which is that um, you should actually be amazed by how long um, I can, I can uh, sustain this, um, because you know what men are like. Um, so there's, there's um, and that would, that's part of the materialist reading here. So were you suggesting that, but... No. no, okay. Um, all right, let's look at the satire against mankind, just with that in mind. Um, yeah, do you want to do it now? I thought we'd do the more obscene stuff on uh, Monday. Yeah, we, we'll, let's do the satire against mankind, then there's plenty, there's plenty of, of, uh, of the fun stuff. So were I, do we have time for this? Yeah, were I, who to my cost already am, one of those strange, prodigious creatures, man, a spirit free to choose for my own share what case of flesh and blood I pleased to wear, I'd be a dog, a monkey, or a bear, or anything but that vain animal who is so proud of being rational. So um, it's unhappy to be a human being, he said. Um, were I who to my cost already 
am one of those strange, prodigious creatures, man. Um, I find myself a human being. Um, that's really not so good. If I could be anything I wanted, I would be anything but that creature, that vain animal who is so proud of being rational. And so there, here comes the satire against reason. Um, it's a satire against man, first of all, because of our pride in our reason. The senses are too gross. That is, um, we have five senses, and um, they don't tell us enough. Um, they're not subtle enough for what our minds are. The senses are too gross, and he'll contrive a sixth to contradict the other five. Um, so humans come up with a sixth sense that is reason. And before certain instinct will prefer reason, which 50 times for one does err. So instinct is certain. You can always trust instinct. This is where he's first saying that. Um, that's what dogs and monkeys and bears rely on, is their instinct. Um, reason, well, we prefer instinct. Humans prefer instinct. But reason makes 50 times as many errors as instinct does. Now, one reason to compare this to Dryden is to remember that in um, Religio Laici, written um, a little bit later than this, but the whole point is that these ideas are um, in the air. Um, or I mean, these are debates that people are having. Um, the question is, can you come to a belief in God simply through reason? That's the question of deism. Um, and Dryden says you can. Um, that is, you look at the world and you say there has to be a creator. Um, but that wouldn't tell you enough to, for you to come to the idea of salvation. So for Dryden, reason is can do a lot, but it can't do enough. Um, and you need more than reason. Um, and among the things you need are um, inner light and intuition and also revelation. Um, and all of these things are kind of the Dryden version of what Rochester is reducing simply to instinct. So instinct is certain, and reason makes 50 times as many errors as instinct does. Reason and ignis fatuus in the mind, which leaving light of nature, that is sense, behind pathless and dangerous wandering ways it takes through errors, fenny bogs, and thorny breaks. Um, so reason brings you deeply into error, whilst the misguided follower climbs with pain, that is those of us who follow reason, we climb with pain mountains of whimsies heaped in his own brain, stumbling from thought to thought, the misguided follower stumbling from thought to thought, falls headlong down into doubt's boundless sea, where, like to drown, so we start thinking in terms of reason instead of instinct and, um, and um, the light of um, um, nature. We start thinking in terms of reason, and we get lost, and we don't see how things can possibly be the way they are. So what do we do? We start reading books. Um, we fall into the doubt's boundless sea where, like to drown, likely to drown, books bear him up a while and make him try to swim with bladders of philosophy. So um, 
we try and, and hold up on the swim bladders of philosophy by reading a lot of books, in hopes still to overtake the escaping light. I think that's a great line. That is that um, we start doubting, we start looking to books and to philosophy in hopes still to overtake the escaping light. Light's escaping from us. The vapor dances in his dazzling sight till spent it leaves him to eternal night. Then old age and experience hand in hand lead him to death and make him understand after a search so painful and so long that all his life he has been in the wrong. So all our lives we may find we may try to follow reason and in the end find that we've been wrong. Huddled in dirt, the reasoning engine lies who was so proud, so witty, and so wise. So reason alone brings us to the grave um, and brings us to the grave hopelessly. It doesn't do any good. So we follow reason and it doesn't bring us to a place where um, we find satisfaction or happiness or stability or answers. And yet we are vain. We are that vain animal who is so proud of being rational, of following reason. And then he starts explaining that it was pride that caused us to follow reason. So that's a pretty bitter turn there. Pride drew him in as cheats their bubbles catch and made him venture to be made a wretch so that it was pride that made us think that we could follow our reason to the truth. And so we staked all on that. We ventured all on that. The way a dupe is, um, is uh, plays three-card Monty because, as you know, he's just describing the psychology of a certain kind of gambling games and cheats. You watch someone playing three-card Monty. Have you ever done this? They don't do it anymore, really. But um, the way it used to work, he used to walk through New York. Um, you seen it? No. So do people know what three-card Monty is? Um, it's so interesting how this has disappeared. It's all Mayor Giuliani's doing. Um, you used to walk through New York. Um, they had them in Boston, but not as much. You used to walk through New York, and there were guys who would have these cardboard tables set up, and they'd have three cards in front of them, and two would be red, and one would be black. And um, they'd just move them around, and you were supposed to try and um, point to the black one. And it's, if you've ever done the impossible quiz, it's kind of like that. Um, and um, they would say, you know, just follow the black card. It's a shell game is also another version. Just follow the black card, and they'd move the cards and move the cards around. And you would always watch someone else do it. And they would always point to the wrong card, and the guy would say, I'm sorry, and he'd point to the black card, which is the card, and you knew where it was. So if you were me or many other people, you would then put your $20 down. And it turned out that the guy who lost was a shell. Um, that is, he was part of the whole setup. Um, and when he was playing, the, um, it was easy to see where the black card was going. Um, then when you played, the guy who was, the, the guy who was um, do, m manipulating the cards had palmed another red card, or he would palm the black card, and you'd always pick the red card and lose your $20. Um, I don't think they actually made a lot of money because they had to pay off the shill, and um, then there were second shills who pretended that they were taken in and then they also lost. And it probably took them like half an hour or 45 minutes to get a real sucker like me. Um, but they did. They did it enough. And I realized that there's one guy on 87th Street. I noticed that it was um, 
the, the same elderly man was there every time I passed for like six months, so I realized he was the shell. Um, and I actually thought that was really interesting. Um, he just looked so different in every way from um, the kind of bodyguard and the card manipulator, but he was the one who was taking people in. Um, so what one would do is venture, and um, then we'd be caught. So and we and it would happen out of pride. That's how a certain kind of gambling works, where you think you have more skill than um, the people who are losing. So pride drew him in. As cheats, their bubbles catch and made him venture to be made a wretch. So it's out of pride that we were we were suckered by reason. Um, his wisdom did his happiness destroy aiming to know that world he should enjoy. What does that line mean? That's a very good heroic couple kind of concluding line. Aiming to know that world he should enjoy. Paraphrase that. Liz. Yeah, good, yeah. Okay, um, I think that what's the heroic couplet structure here is that the stresses should be on know and enjoy. That is, so that, that the mistake that the reasonable person makes is um, there are two attitudes you could have towards the world. Um, you could have the attitude of knowing it. You can choose between knowing it and enjoying it. And what the, what the wretch does, what the, what the sucker does, what the bubble does, is he chooses knowing the world that he should instead choose to enjoy. So, so the should there is he made the wrong decision. Um, aiming to know that world he should enjoy. Um, what he should do with the world is enjoy it, but no, he decided he would rather know it instead. Um, again, there's a pretty interesting fact here, which is that Rochester has managed to reverse a very standard view, which is it's much better to know the world than, than simply to enjoy it thoughtlessly and stupidly. Um, and he really gets a moral, um, a, a considerable moral force behind that. You idiot, how can you be so stupid as to try and know the world and give up enjoying it? Um, you're a total sucker that you did this. You gave in to Satan's temptations. Um, and wit was his vain, frivolous pretense of pleasing others at his own expense. So here wit is starting to mean both um, the high class or high level version of wit, which is knowledge, but also it's starting to turn into wittiness, into quickness or cleverness. So that you get smart, and what's the result? It means that you can please others with how much you know, but also please others by the jokes that you're making, but at your own expense. You're not happy. Um, you're making others laugh at your cleverness, but it's not making you happy. So wit was as vain, frivolous pretense of pleasing others at his own expense. Why is that a frivolous pretense? For wits are treated just like common whores. First they're enjoyed, and then kicked out of doors. The pleasure passed, a threatening doubt remains, 
that frights the enjoyer with succeeding pains. So again, notice that the present doesn't last. Um, it's quickly gone, just like in the song. Um, and what remains? Well, it's um, anxiety and fear. Um, so you had your moment of wit, but now there's only doubt. Threatening doubt remains. Um, that frights the enjoyer with succeeding pains. Um, women and men of wit are dangerous tools and ever fatal to admiring fools. So anyone um, witty is um, just going to mess up your life. And all of this is true. I mean, just think of teasing and making jokes at other people's expenses and how the momentary pleasure of saying something funny but mean um, gives way to bad possible consequences. Um, totally not worth the momentary pleasure. Um, pleasure allures, and when the fops escape, tis not that they're beloved, but fortunate, and therefore what they fear at heart, they hate. Um, so pleasure is very alluring, but if you get out of it, and if nothing bad happens, um, it's not that um, it was all okay and everyone likes you, it's that you were lucky. Um, and so people fear the results of their own wittiness, or they fear the results of hanging out with witty people who may turn um, their wit against, against them. Um, and if they do escape, it's pure fortune. And in the meantime, afterwards, it will fill them with regret and hate. And again, this is an experience we've all had, right? Finding someone very entertaining and witty and then kind of being pissed off at them afterwards. Um, wishing that you hadn't um, had the sort of laughing, joking, um, uh, catty interaction with them that you had. That you hadn't actually been catty about other people. Um, although it was fun while it lasted. Um, so that's life at court for Rochester. Um, anything that happens in the Boulevard of Eastan or Sherman happens in a thousand times more concentrated um, versions at court um, and with infinitely disastrous more infinitely more disastrous consequences too. So now a clergyman comes to object, but now methinks some formal band and beard takes me to task. Come on, sir, I'm prepared. So now some clergyman is going to say, you shouldn't feel this way. You're, you're too pessimistic, too misanthropic, too negative. And then um, the formal band there is um, the siglum of a clergyman. Um, so the clergyman says, then by your favor, anything that's writ against this jibing, jingling that called wit likes me abundantly. So if you're saying that people shouldn't be catty to each other, I totally agree, says the clergyman. But you take care upon this point not to be too severe um, as long as you're, you don't overdo it. Perhaps my, my muse were fitter for this part, for I profess I can be very smart on wit, which I abhor with all my heart. I long to lash it in some sharp essay but your grand indiscretion bids me stay and turn my tide of ink another way. So the clergyman says, I agree with you about, about catty wit, nasty wit, low wit, um, and I would have written the same thing myself, but I see that you're so misanthropic 
that instead of spending some time now writing against catty, nasty, low wit, I think I have to write against the other stuff that you say. So the clergyman goes on. The clergyman that Rochester is imagining will respond to him. goes on. What rage ferments in your degenerate mind to make you rail at reason in mankind? So why are you railing at reason in mankind? Blessed, glorious man, to whom alone kind heaven and everlasting soul has freely given, whom his great maker took such care to make that from himself he did the image take and his fair frame and shining reason dressed to dignify his nature above beast. So here's the defense of reason and of nature, that it makes us godlike. I mean, reason and um, um, uh, our greatness is it makes us godlike. Um, we're beyond nature. Reason, by whose aspiring influence we take a flight beyond material sense. So there's the material world that, um, that, that Tina was pointing us to. We take a flight beyond material sense, dive into mysteries, then soaring, pierce the flaming limits of the universe, search heaven and hell, find out what's acted there, and give the world true grounds of hope and fear. So the clergyman has a pretty um, eloquent defense of the higher reason and of the transcendent um, ideas and insights that it makes possible. And um, that last line, and give the world true grounds of hope and fear, doesn't mean um, reason to hope and fear. It's not like, yes, now we should hope and we should fear, but rather the true things that we should consider when we um, are thinking about whether to hope for something or whether to fear it. Those, that's probably not so great a difference, but just it's in metaphor we say, I'll give you grounds for fear, um, or I had no grounds for fear when she came in. Um, but here you have to see that it's rather... Um, premises that we can consider. Yeah. No, he's against wit. He's he's in favor of reason. Yeah, because he's more in the deist mode. So that is, he's not a deist, but what? But he, if you think of him as being Dryden-like. The idea is that um, what we do is we combine um, revelation with, with inner light with reason. And if we act according to our conscience, to the, to, to the um, insights of our conscience, and we act reasonably to try to remain true to our conscience, then we're acting morally correctly. So, so it, I mean, what's really neat about this poem, it's not that Rochester is a great poet. He isn't. Remember that thing um, that, that we looked at the first, the first day, which is um, that he was more, what is it, more a wit than a poet? Um, <coughs> more, what is it, more a poet than a libertine, more a wit than a poet? There was that series of, of, um, of things that he was that, that Walpole describes. Yeah. In, in, it's in that paragraph about, about manners. Um, but Rochester was... So he's not a great poet the way Dryden is. Um, but he does write really good lines, and he does even write really good poems. And he also makes really good moves. So the thing about 
draw, I'll just say this general fact, that to be a great poet is to have um, a sense of poetry. Dryden talks about this in the, in the preface to Fables um, as a whole architectonic. That is, the whole structure of the poem really matters. It's not just that you write good lines. It's that you put everything together. That you put, if you're writing narrative poetry, and all poems are in one way or another narratives, the narratives are good as narratives, no matter what words they're told in. Um, and the structure works as a structure, and the parts of the structure um, interact with each other. And th so that's one thing that, um, one of several things you need to be able to do, several skills you need to have um, in order to be a great poet. Another is a skill in language, um, which Dryden actually says is the last thing you need. You need it, but that only comes at the very end. That's just touching up everything else. Um, and another is um, a skill in every move that you make as you get from one idea to another. Um, so let's just say that those are three fairly obviously different things. Do people accept that? That there's the structure of the whole um, is the macroscopic or macrocosmic thing. <clears throat> there's the structure of individual lines, which would be the microcosmic thing. And then there's a way on the middle level that you get from, move from one part to the next part when you're talking about the whole. Um, and you could, you could call that, uh, that as occurring on a discursive level, how an argument is made, how a transition is made from one part to another. This is all first-year writing also. Um, that is, you have your thesis, but you also have different paragraphs, and you have transitions between paragraphs and between sentences, and then you also have whether the sentences are grammatical. This is the poetical version of that. So what Rochester doesn't really have is the macroscopic architecton. Um, that Dryden does have, and Rochester doesn't. No one really reads Rochester to think, oh man, this poem, let me just describe what, he, what, what this poem says um, in the broadest possible terms. The broadest possible terms are not where Rochester is interested. But what he does have are really good lines and couplets, and really outrageous lines and couplets. And the other thing that he has is really good transitions, really good ways of pushing an argument from saying one thing to saying something different um, through, a, through a sleight of hand, through a really good move. So the move that he's making here is essentially to say um, reason is, is, um, leaves us unhappy. Um, it's, the use, it's the very sharp use of our mental powers, but the very sharp use of our mental powers um, is simply being witty, and wittiness is nothing but cattiness. And then the clergyman comes and he says, look, I agree with you about cattiness. I'm against that, but that's not the only thing that reason is. So Rochester understands and wants us to see the move that he's made here, which is to go from one attack on reason, that people who try to live simply as philosophers um, and try to understand life by thinking it through, die unhappy, um, despair, because they see what reality is really like, and reality makes you despair the more you come to know it. And then Rochester says, plus my evidence of that is no one um, finds witty people pleasant for very long, um, and um, witty people always 
you regret spending time with them and they regret what they've said afterwards. So, so um, agility of mind doesn't, um, is, is not good in any way. And then he shows you that because he wants to make a second argument by having clergymen say, I'll give you that cattiness is not good. But that doesn't mean that all uses of the mind and of reason aren't good. The uses of reason and of the mind that are good are those that reflect our maker. That is, if we use our minds the way God wants us to use them, rather than using them just to be mean to each other, um, to be quick, to, be, to, to out-compete each other in, um, um, in sarcasm, um, but if we use them the way God wants us to use them, that's a good thing. I myself would have written what you've just written against sarcastic wit, um, but um, now, in order to refute you about reason being used in a theological sense or in a grand or philosophical sense, that's what I'm going to say to you now, which is namely that reason is what allows us to think about um, God and the universe and our place in the universe and to go beyond material experience, beyond animal experience, which is what you're praising, to go beyond that to transcendent and, um, and, and supernal experience um, so that we can search heaven and hell, find out what's acted there and give the world true grounds of hope and fear. Um, we can learn about God using our reason. Um, and Rochester says, no, now I'm going to argue against that. Hold, mighty man, I cry. So I think that's a good thing to say to someone who's bothering you. Hold, mighty man. Um, I guess we would say Mr. Man. Now, Hold, mighty man, I cry. All this we know from the pathetic pen of Ingelo. So Ingelo, as the footnote will tell you, is a poet who basically um, tried to make this argument. And so what Rochester is really telling you is, now I'm going to argue against him. Um, this clergyman is going to say these things, but he's basically going to give an argument that I can identify as Ingelo's. Um, we know it from Patrick's Pilgrim, from Sibs's, from Sibs's Soliloquies, and tis this very reason I despise. So here's the move he's made. Out of a not particularly um, controversial attack on um, cattiness, on, um, you know, high school meanness, he's now going to attack the use of the mind that, it, that discourses about God. And he says, this is the thing that I despise. Even more, or as much as cattiness, I despise this. This supernatural gift, that is philosophical reason, Rochester says, this supernatural gift that makes a might thinks, think he's the image of the infinite, would have been pronounced infinite then. So um, we're just mites, but we have this gift that makes us think that we're images of the infinite, comparing his short life void of all rest to the eternal and the ever-blessed. So that reason makes us think that we can compare our short, restless lives. That, by the way, should go back to the idea of the live-long minute. 
if I can love you for um, a whole minute when our life is void of all rest and we think that we can compare ourselves to the eternal and be ever blessed, this busy, puzzling, stir up of doubt that frames deep mysteries then finds them out. So we think that we're so cool, um, but all we're doing is fussing we're, we're, we ourselves are posing the riddles, framing the mysteries that we are then so proud of answering. But if we're the person who, if I pose a riddle, it can't be so great that I can also answer the riddle that I pose. Um, what is one plus one? Eleven. I'm so smart that I figured out the answer to my own question. Get it? One and then a one. That's an eleven, right? But third grade? First grade? Kindergarten? Kindergarten. Um... Third grade? Yeah, but that's, yeah, so you're t that's, that's way too old for that riddle. Yeah, okay. Uh, anyhow, if you can answer a riddle that you yourself have posed, there's nothing impressive about that. But that's all that we do in philosophy. Um, busy, this busy, puzzling serve of doubt that frames deep mysteries then finds them out. Filling with frantic crowds of thinking fools, those reverend bedlams, bedlams are um, insane asylums, filling with frantic crowds of thinking fools, those reverend bedlams, colleges and schools. Um, so he's talking about you. Um, born on whose wings each heavy sot can pierce the limits of the boundless universe. So charming ointments make an old witch fly and bear a crippled carcass through the sky. Tis this exalted power whose business lies in nonsense and impossibilities. This made a whimsical philosopher before the spacious world. His tub prefer, this is Diogenes, who is very famous for um, walking around in a tub and carrying a lantern, looking for an honest man. Um, so, what a fool, is what Rochester is saying. He thought because his reason was so great that he would wear a tub, or maybe he was just disgusted by human beings who believed in their own reason, or both. And we have modern cloistered coxcombs who retire to think because they have naught to do. Um, so here are all these people who think they're so great because they're thinkers, but it's because they don't have anything to do. And then he gives his view. What is thinking for? Thinking is for action. This is a repetition of the idea that the world is to enjoy rather than to know. But thoughts are given for actions government. Where action ceases, thoughts impertinent. Our sphere of action is life's happiness. And he who thinks beyond thinks like an ass. Thus, whilst against false reasoning I inveigh, I own right reason, which I would obey. So there is a right use of reason, and I would obey that. Um, not philosophical reasoning, um, which is false reasoning, but, but practical, what would now be called practical reasoning, reasoning about what to do and how to do it. Um, that reason, which distinguishes by sense and gives us rules of good and ill from thence, that is from our senses, that bounds desires with a reforming will, so reason that prevents our desires from growing too, going too far, which is a standard definition of why we have reason, so that we don't give way to our desires. But then he's going to explain that as being somewhat different in his, in his viewpoint. Um, that bounds desires with a reforming will, 
Why? To keep them more in vigor, not to kill. That is, so we have to be careful not to overdo it um, so that we have the strength to do it again. Um, don't get too drunk or your hangover will be so bad that you won't want to drink tomorrow. Um, moderation in all your vices, not, you guys, not because they're vices, but because you want to maximize um, your capacity for enjoying them. And if you're not moderate, um, you'll just get too sick and all that drinking you could be doing tomorrow, you just won't be able to do. And that'll be sad. Um, that's what he's saying here. So why do we use reasons? Why do we use reason to bound desire with a reforming will, but to keep them more in vigor, not to kill? Your reason hinders mine, helps to enjoy, renewing appetites yours would destroy. My reason is my friend. Yours is a cheat. Hunger calls out. My reason bids me eat. Perversely, yours, your appetite does mock. So... Um, and here, it's, here he's talking about sex, not about food. So I want sex, and my reason says, go for it. Whereas what your reason says, see, you're fallen, you've got to resist temptation. Um, this asked for food, so I'm looking for, keep to the metaphor now, um, um, hunger asks for food, um, my reason, or I'm hungry, and so I ask for some food. Yours that is that reason. Your reason answers, what's a clock? That is, what time is it? Is it really time for dinner? This plain distinction, sir, your doubt secures. Tis not true reason I despise, but yours. So what he's saying is, don't worry. I don't hate reason. I just hate your reason, what you think reason is. Thus, I think reason right it. Now he makes another pretty dazzling move. So he says, okay, so you thought that I was against reason, but I'm not. I just explained that, that actually I'm not against reason. There is a good version of reason. So thus I think reason right it. Man, not so much. But for man, I'll ne'er recant. Defend him if you can. So reason, okay, I can show a way of defending reason, but not any way of defending man. For all his pride and his philosophy, tis evident beasts are, in their degree, as wise at least and better far than he. So for all the reason philosophy man has, beasts are better um, in everything that they do. Here's why. Those creatures are the wisest to attain by surest means the ends at which they aim. If therefore Jowler, that is a hunting dog, finds and kills his hares better than Mears supplies committee chairs. Mears is a government officer. <coughs> but one's a statesman, the other but a hound. Jowler in justice could be wiser found. So the dog that does better at getting hares than um, the politician does at filling up a committee um, is better at his job and is wiser. You see how far man's wisdom here extends now, look next if human nature makes amends. So what about human nature? We don't, we're not wise enough to get what we're trying to do, but maybe we have better natures than animals do. Um, well, let's see. Whose principles more, most generous are and just, and whose morals you would sooner trust? Be judge yourself. I'll bring it to the test. Which is the basest creature, man or beast? 
Now, it's true, he concedes, that birds feed on birds, beasts on each other prey, but savage man alone does man betray. So it's true that all animals, human and otherwise, are cannibalistic. It's true that birds eat birds and that beasts, um, beasts eat beasts, but they don't betray each other. It's betrayal which will only be found among humans. Um, when birds eat birds, they know what's going on, both the eater and the eaten, and the eated and the eaten. Um, same with beasts. But betrayal, that's only something humans do. Pressed by necessity, they, that is birds and beasts, pressed by necessity, they kill for food. Man undoes man to do himself no good. So why are humans cruel to each other? Not because of necessity, not because they need something. But why? Out of some sheer moral fact about us. With teeth and claws by nature armed, they hunt nature's allowance to supply their want. So they, they hunt and kill enough not to starve, to have enough to eat. But man with smiles, embraces, friendship, praise, inhumanly his fellow's life betrays. So it's not that you do stuff because you need it and it's all straightforward and honest. It's inhuman betrayal, hypocrisy, lying, and deceit. With voluntary pains works his distress. We do it, we take pains voluntarily, not out of necessity, which is what um, causes um, the beasts who are pressed by necessity, they kill for food. But we, with voluntary pains, work our distress, not through necessity, but wantonness. Again, animals, for hunger or for love, they fight and tear, whilst wretched man is still in arms for fear. Now we get another move, which is that um, they fight and tear for hunger and for love, which makes sense. We're in a state of constant fear. Why are we in a state of constant fear? Because human beings are always betraying each other for no reason. Because you can't, Rochester is saying, um, ever know that someone isn't in the process of betraying you. An animal knows. If, 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 you know, think about how water holes work, that if the lion isn't hungry, all the other animals drink at the water hole with the lion. They're not afraid of a lion that, that's, that isn't hungry. The lion's not going to attack them. Um, but humans, they will attack when you see no reason that they might attack you. Now, notice he's going back here to this idea of cattiness, of wittiness, that, what, that reason might be okay to tell you how to enjoy life, but human beings, what do they do? They use their reason and they use whatever talents they have in order to be vicious to each other. And we can't even anticipate when that will be. Therefore, the state of being human is a state of constant fear. And now we can say, and this is what the next part of the poem is going to say, which we'll look at on Tuesday, but read the rest of the Rochester that I scanned for you. Now what we can say is because humans are always behaving frightfully to each other, humans are always acting fearfully. Our human life is an experience of constant fear. And the reason we behave so badly 
is that we're trying to find some way to get out of our fear. This is a Hobbesian view where the state of um, all human beings is one of mutual fear, is Hobbes' famous phrase. It's a state of mutual fear, and that mutual fear is self-sustaining because everyone, therefore, acts in order to harm others so as not to be harmed themselves. So out of fear, we harm others because we harm others they are full of fear, um, and therefore the condition of humanity is we harm others because we are fearful, and we are fearful because others are always harming us, and they're always harming us because they're fearful, and so on. That's what um, Rochester is about to describe. Okay, so so reread this poem, read the other poems. We'll get to the one you want to do, and um, see you on Tuesday. <laughs>